the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who know the show, the show is in two parts. The first part is on estate planning, and the second part we talk about is nostalgia, politics, history, religion. And tonight we're very pleased to have an interview that we had with great author Ron Chernow on his book on Grant. And if you want to learn anything about General President Grant, suggest you buy the book Grant by Ron Chernow. Um... We're also accompanied by my wife, Beth, tonight. Hello, everybody. Okay, well, Beth, I think let's start it off. You have an email question. Let's start it off with that. I do, indeed. This is from Margaret. I have property in Florida and New York. If I have your office draft a trust for me here in New York, can that trust own both my New York and Florida properties? If I transfer my house to the trust, Will I still be entitled to my senior citizen exemption? Well, the answer to both questions is yes. One of the main reasons we deed a property to a trust, and let's let's say not to the children, is because a lot of people have their senior citizen's exemption. You put your son or daughter's name on the deed. Assuming they're not a senior citizen, then in that case you may lose your senior citizen exemption. And a trust, ordinarily a trust done in New York is going to be done is going to be recognized in the other 49 states. There's some exceptions about real estate in Louisiana, but for the most part, if you do a trust in New York, it'll be recognized in, you know, Florida, Pennsylvania, whatever. The most states that we do the trust for um, in, in other states where we have real estate would be Florida, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, and North Carolina a little bit. So, yes, you can... You can set up a trust here in New York, and you can deed your properties in other states to that. And that's one of the reasons you want to do a trust, because if you own property, let's say, in Florida and New York, and you pass away, and both those properties are in your name alone, we've got to probate your will here in New York, and we've got to probate your will in Florida. And ordinarily, we don't want it to go through one probate, let alone two. All right, we have a question right now. Eric, what's your question? For taking my call, I made a big mistake on my trust because I left my trust in the care of my cousins who were beneficiaries of my will. And right. I hope I'm able to correct it on my, revo- my, my, my irrevocable, I mean my revocable trust. Well, revocable trust you can always change. There's never a problem with that. The only problem is the paperwork involved. We're going to have to notify the co-op of the change in the trust. Uh, but I have my two, two trustees taking care of me, but... I just don't want a conflict of interest coming up because I'm concerned that they won't that will they won't be doing my stuff in my in my best interest because they may scrimp on my money like I had dark feelings when my father got got Alzheimer's right. and died. Okay, well, it probably can be corrected in any event. If it's a revocable trust, it certainly be corrected. So don't panic. You know, maybe a little bit more pay, paperwork than you want because of the co-op, because the co-op has to approve and any changes. And also, what's a trust? Trust. I wanted somebody to supervise them that they do the right thing. Well, you can have what's called a trust monitor at some point who can supervise them and do the right thing. I want a trust monitor down the line. Okay. Those things so are probably. Do do you, have your cousins done anything that you're not? 
crazy about now? Are you no, still... but because okay. I had a it's a psychological issue. I okay. have post-traumatic stress syndrome after my after taking care of my father, because he he he, he, he this I had an argument with the social worker at the nursing home, and he wanted to go home badly. But the nursing home people, I was all people said I sh- that I must keep him in the in the in the nursing home. Well, sometimes that can be a very stressful situation because there's a lot of times there's a um, you know conflict of opinions. A lot of times people think, oh, the nursing home is the best place to be, and a lot of people would rather go at home even if they're going to pass away soon. So I understand your point. I think we can handle your problems. Don't worry about it too much. If you want to talk to us, give us a call at uh, our Manhattan office at 718 But I can't afford much because I spent the money on the trust. Okay, we'll see what we can do. All right, Eric? Thank you very much. I love you. Thank you. All right, Eric. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Okay, now each week Kevin McCullough answers one of our questions, or I shouldn't say he doesn't answer one of our questions. He reads one of our questions, and I try to answer it. So let's replay Kevin's question of the week. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan Law Firm will answer questions that relates to estate care and elder law. And, Mike, this week's question comes from Carmen, who writes, I heard that gifting away your assets is a good way of reducing your taxable estate. I plan on gifting away my assets so that my children will not have to pay estate tax when I pass. What do you think about gifting? Mike Connors. Ordinarily, I'm not a big fan of gifting because there's no federal estate tax now, thanks to President Trump, under $11 million per person. That's $11 million for husband, $11 million for wife. So unless you're in that $22 million plus range, you're not going to save on any federal estate tax. Now, New York State, yes, if you make some gifts, you could cut your New York State estate tax. But even so, in New York State, there's no federal, uh, there's no New York State estate death tax under five million two hundred fifty thousand dollars, five million for husband, five million for wife. So unless you're in those numbers, the, you know, the gift tax really doesn't make a lot of sense to try to avoid the estate tax if you're under ten, eleven million dollars anyway. And here's one of the things: a lot of times people make the mistake they give away, let's say, stocks that have appreciated in value. They give away a stock portfolio that's worth $100,000 that they paid ten for it. They give away to their kids. The kids sell the stock. They pay $30,000 in taxes that ordinarily we could get out tax-free if we didn't give them away and kept them in the estate. Okay, so that's uh, interesting. And, friends, if you've got questions about what gifting would do to your portfolio or to your children's inheritance, why don't you call Connors & Sullivan and find out for yourself. 718-238-6500 is the number, 718-238-6500. Or you can write MikeConnors at gmail.com, MikeConnors at gmail.com, or 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And, again, you know, if you're driving around on, you know, Monday through Friday on 5 to 6, usually, you can get Kevin McCullough on 970 The Answer. Sometimes he's on with John Katzmatidis on Wednesday, but Kevin McCullough, Monday through Friday, 970 The Answer at 5 o'clock. Now, Beth, we're going to be talking about the Civil War Roundtable in a couple of minutes. And just where we meet again at 3 West 51st Street. And a couple of, well, a couple of weeks ago, actually, Ron Chernow was there. What did you think of the meeting, or what was your impression of Ron Chernow in his book? Um, well, I loved it. It was a different format. As you know, he likes to have a, a, a more casual format where he answers questions. So essentially, you as president interviewed him, and it was wonderful. We had seen him earlier at the Union Club um, where he was in the same, same format where he had been interviewed by um, General Petraeus. Um, it's a great format. Because um, I think if with the proper interview, with the proper questions, it's much easier for the speaker to to zero in very, very um, specifically and with a lot of detail on certain interesting topics. And he didn't. He doesn't feel like he's got to give a big overview to this huge book. And um, you've read it all the way through. Michael's read it all the way through, and um, it is the. I think I think the 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 detail is what both you and Michael said. You know what made it a, a fantastic um, a fantastic read, 
and he is a Pulitzer Prize winner for his his biography on George Washington. And his biography on Alexander Hamilton is the one that the the play Hamilton's based on. So he is brilliant and um he loves I, it seems like he just loves the people he writes about. Very true. Now, we're going to need to take a short break. Then we'll be replaying our interview with Ron Chernow that happened at the Three West Club on our Civil War Roundtable in May. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash Fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As many of you know, I'm involved with the Civil War Roundtable of New York, and each month we have a speaker about the Civil War. And just for those who are interested, Ed Bars, if everybody remembers, was the guy on Ken Burns' Civil War. He's probably about 65 years then when he did that show, and he said he couldn't go out to eat in a restaurant without being followed by 100 people back then. But he's going to be speaking in our Civil War Roundtable on September 12th, of this year. It's going to be at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. Now, ordinarily, our club meets on Monday nights, but because of religious holidays, we're going to be meeting on Wednesday, September 12th at the 3 West Club, and it's going to be Ask Ed Anything, anything about the Civil War. Not that you can't ask him about the War of 1812 or the Mexican-American War or the Indian Wars or World War One or World War Two, but it's going to be focused on the Civil War. So if you're an Ed Bars fan, and I don't know anybody who's met him who's not, join us at the Civil War Roundtable on September 12th, 5.30, 3 West 51st Street, and doors are going to be opened at 5.30. Now, a couple of months ago, May 2018... We were very privileged to have a guest at the Three West Club at the Civil War Roundtable, Ron Chernow. Now, Ron Chernow is a guy who's written great books about George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and U.S. Grant. And on the occasion of our May 14, 2018 Civil War Roundtable meeting, we were talking about his book on Grant, titled Grant. And if you don't know much about the general president and you want to learn more, I can't think of a more excellent book to read than Ron Chernow's Grant. So here we're going to have the interview is done in front of an audience. There are about 70 people in, in, in the crowd there, and it's a question and answer about Ron Chernow's book, Grant. 
And now, Grant, by the great, and thankfully not late, Ron Chernoff. <laughs> Mr. Chernoff has received many awards, including a Pulitzer Prize for Washington, a life. His book on Alexander Hamilton was the inspiration for the Broadway musical Hamilton, for which he served as historical director. And so, I'd like to present our current president, Mike Connors, and author, Ron Chernoff. Thank you very much. Okay, again, there's a, a little bit of different format tonight. We're not going to have any questions at the end, so I'm up here, you know, trying to do our best to speak for everybody. But, Mr. Chernow, let's start with Grant. Well, West Point, how did he get into West Point, and how did he like West Point? First, I have to say, I feel like we should be reenacting the Lincoln-Douglas debate, you know, here <laughs> tonight, the way that this is set up. And I'm just so grateful to this group uh, for honoring me this evening, that there's no praise sweeter than that that comes from uh, colleagues and peers and people who are interested in your subject. So thank you. Um, Grant did not want to go to West Point, to put it mildly. Uh, Grant's overbearing father, Jesse Root Grant, um, announced to Ulysses that he was going to West Point. In fact, Grant so dreaded the experience that uh, as he was taking the uh, train, from his home in southwest Ohio to West Point, uh, he kept hoping that the train would be in an accident, forcing him to return home. Uh, and he said that when he was at West Point, there was actually a debate going on in the U.S. Congress as to whether or not to abolish the academy. And Grant was following this avidly, rooting that Congress would abolish the point. He said that the, that the two happiest days of his life, one was his last day's president and the other was his last day at West Point. He made the statement that every year at West Point was equivalent to five Ohio years. <laughs> How well did he do at West Point? Well, you know, he actually did better than people think. Um, he graduated uh, uh, 21st out of 39. That sounds very, very uh, lackluster. But you have to realize that um, that class started with 82 members. There was always very, very heavy attrition in a West Point class. And so if you look at 21 uh, versus 82 instead of 39, he actually was kind of around almost the top quarter of the, uh, of the class. But um, he, was, uh, he was lackluster. He was um, uh, lackadaisical. Uh, it's interesting that the subjects that he excelled in were math, engineering, and geology. The two subjects that he did not do particularly well in were artillery and infantry tactics. Okay. Didn't seem to hurt his performance later on. Now, speaking of his performance, after West Point, Mexico. Yeah, he goes, goes to Mexico, and uh, Grant certainly, in retrospect, was very strongly opposed to the Mexican War. He said that um, never had a powerful nation, you know, um, um, imposed an unjust uh, war, such a wicked war, on a weaker nation. He always regretted that he had fought. But what I found going through his papers at the time was that he was rather enthusiastically fighting. So I think that some of that um, was um, retroactive uh, feeling about the, uh, the Mexican War. The Mexican War was enormously important for Grant uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, he was made a quartermaster. He also performed commissary uh, duties. And when he um, was made a quartermaster, he objected uh, because quartermasters did not fight. And he said that the reason that he was opposing the uh, appointment was that he did not want to uh, shirk service. He wanted to uh, see combat. He wanted to share the dangers of his men. And Grant, in battle after battle after battle, fought and fought courageously. He did not need to be in a single one of those battles. So that, to my mind, is real patriotism and real courage. And his experience as a quartermaster and doing commissary duty during the Mexican War was extremely important because um, Grant um, not only learned you know, tactics and strategy of war, uh, he learned the nuts and bolts of uh, an army. Um, and you know, during the Civil War, uh, Grant would be simultaneously overseeing four different armies across a 1,500-mile front in which his mastery of logistics, which started at the time of the Mexican War and his work as a quartermaster, was absolutely vital to what he did later on. So no experience was wasted in Grant's life, although I think at the time it seemed like it was. Mexican War is over. 
where does Grant go? What, what happens to him? He stays in the Army. It's, 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 it's an unhappy period of his uh, life. He uh, marries uh, Julia Dent, um, who was the daughter of a St. Louis uh, slaveholder named Colonel Frederick Dent, who owned about 30 slaves on a plantation uh, outside of uh, St. Louis. Um, Colonel Dent had warned his daughter that in marrying uh, Grant, Grant would not be able to um, provide for her in the Southern Belle manner in which she was uh, accustomed. And indeed, Grant is assigned to a pair of bleak, lonely outposts in Oregon and Northern California where he cannot afford on his army pay to bring his uh, wife and children. Uh, he starts, uh, he becomes very depressed, he's very lonely. Uh, he starts drinking and he finally in 1854 uh, leaves the army because of the drinking uh, problem. He shows up drunk uh, at a pay table for his men and really leaves the army in disgrace. And of course the Civil War, had, as you all know, had a very, very active and quite malicious rumor mill. And the story of Grant's drinking and the reason that he had left the army was something that would be trotted out repeatedly against him uh, during the, the Civil War. You know, he then uh, starts this very, very bleak period. He goes back to St. Louis. Uh, Julia had received as a wedding gift 60 acres uh, from her father. You know, Grant tried, tried manfully to make it as a farmer. He also would, every week, he would um, uh, chop down wood and he would uh, take it into St. Louis and he would sell street, uh, wood, um, wood on street corners in uh, St. Louis. He looked very shabby, he looked very um, uh, defeated. And one day he ran into uh, one of his officers from the Mexican War who looked at Grant, who just looked so seedy and so depressed. Grant was selling firewood on the street corner and he said, great God, Grant, what are you doing? And Grant said, I'm trying to settle the problem of poverty. It's kind of a wonderful line because it shows that even at that bleak moment that Grant had this rather delicious uh, dry wit that did not abandon him. He can't make it as a, a farmer. Um, he then joins a real estate partnership with one of Julia's cousins called Boggs and Grant. In this real estate venture, Grant's job was supposed to be that he went around collecting rents from people. But Grant did not have any professional aggression of that sort when it came to business in his nature. And so apparently what would happen, because some of these people, customers, were old army friends, Grant would go to you know, collect the rent and would end up lighting a cigar and whiling away the afternoon telling army stories um, uh, with him. So that business failed. And that actually is a very, very sad period because uh, Julia and the children are out at this plantation, Whitehaven. Grant can't afford to bring them into town, St. Louis, where he's living. He can't afford a rooming house. So he's living in the back room uh, of the Boggs house that had an unheated room that had only three things. Um, it had a bed, a bowl, and a pitcher. Here's a man with a wife and four children, and he can't afford to be with them, and is living in this unheated little back room of uh, a house so that he could work in this failing real estate venture. Finally, what happens by 1860 is that Grant, in absolute desperation, goes to his father, and he swore he would never do this, goes to his father and begs for a job as a clerk in his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, where Grant, and mind you, he's in his late 30s by now, he begs for a job as a clerk junior to his two younger brothers. You could imagine how this felt to him, a man who had been in West Point, a man who had fought in the Mexican War for uh, four years with great, great uh, distinction. Suddenly is this rather, you know, bored, depressed junior clerk in his father's uh, store. Then, of course, what happens, you all know the story, a year later comes Fort Sumter, and Grant turned out not only had all of that military experience from four years uh, in Mexico, he still had perfectly preserved in his mind all of this wisdom stored up from West Point and from many, many years in the uh, military. And one of the things that I say in the, the book is that the other figures that I've written about, and I think most great figures in history, when you read their lives, you feel that they could have thrived in any environment. You feel that they could have succeeded in whatever they did. And I say that Grant actually required a very, very kind of narrow and precise set of circumstances in order to flourish. And when Confederacy fired on Fort Sumter, that was Grant's moment. He suddenly meshed with his moment, and there was the exact right set of circumstances for all of these inner talents and all of this knowledge to come to the surface. Beginning of the war, Fort Donaldson, 
How is, how is Grant learning how to command? Well, Fort Donaldson, you know, was really the first great um, Union uh, victory and very, very um, important. Okay, Fort Donaldson is on the Cumberland River. It's up in the northwest corner of Tennessee. It's very important. flows down, you know, into the heart of the Confederacy. Also, whoever captured that fort would then control uh, the nearby capital, Tennessee, at, uh, at Nashville. And I think that it's very important for a number of uh, reasons. Number one, uh, Grant has to coordinate the attack uh, with the Navy. And I heard, I see my friend Harold Hulser in the back, he did a wonderful event with uh, Jim McPherson at the New York Historical Society last year. Remember, Harold, that Jim was saying that there was no one else at that point in the war, there was no official mechanism for coordinating Army and Navy. And Grant and Fort Henry, which immediately, that victory immediately preceded Fort Donaldson and then Fort Donaldson, Grant with um, Flag Officer Andrew Hull Foote coordinates um, uh, the, not just the Union Army but the, uh, uh, the Navy. And so what happens at Fort Donaldson is that the, um, the naval gunboats you know, are um, firing on Fort Donaldson, which is still, if you visit it today, still kind of vast and powerful uh, earthwork, while Grant's army is pinning them down from the, uh, from, from the back. We need to take a short break. We're talking to Ron Chernow about his book, Grant. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, June 25th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Tuesday, June 26th at Pocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We've been talking right now with Ron Chernow in front of the Civil War Roundtable of New York with an audience in the background talking about his book, Grant. Okay, we then come to, let's say, the first crisis situation, Shiloh. Yeah. Well, Shiloh is, um, as you know, a two-day battle. It was, um, except for Antietam, I guess, the bloodiest uh, of the uh, the battles. It's it's two days. There are 24,000 casualties. Now, imagine the shock. Um, when this happened uh, in 1862, because 24,000 casualties in two days, that meant that there were more casualties in that two-day period than there had been in the Revolutionary War, the War of uh, uh, 1812, 
uh, and what war am I leaving out combined. So in other words, really kind of more than all the casualties in American military history up until that um, uh, point. The Union Army is surprised. You know, it's interesting that uh, Grant was an absolute stickler for um, accuracy. You could almost always count on what he said. He always told his children that honesty was the most important virtue. It was the one place where I found he shaded the truth. The Union Army was genuinely uh, surprised at 6 a.m. on the first day at Shiloh, the Confederate Army, you know, whooping, roaring with the rebel yells, bursts out of the forest, uh, swoops down on Union camps. Uh, Grant claimed that they were not surprised. They definitely uh, were surprised. And the first day is a Union failure. Um, Union Army is thrown back to, against the, uh, uh, the Tennessee River. But interestingly enough, Grant always said that the great thing at Shiloh was the resistance they made that first day, not the victory the, uh, the, the second day. But I don't think that any other general at that point in the Civil War would have reacted with the courage and fortitude that Grant uh, did. Okay, the first night of Shiloh, it's raining. You probably all know the story. It's raining. Grant is going to sleep under branches of an oak tree. It starts raining, so he sees that there's a log house up the hill that's been commandeered as a field hospital. He goes up to the field hospital, and of course, as always happened, you know, after the first, <laughs> after a Civil War battlefield, the surgeons are there without any anesthetic, amputating limbs. Uh, Grant gets sick to his stomach, goes back out in the rain, uh, and he just decides he's going to sleep under this um, oak tree. He's standing there with rain dripping down his brim, you know, sucking on a cigar, and who appears out of the dark? Sherman. And Sherman says to him famously, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own David, haven't we? And Grant says, lick him tomorrow. Now, picture the scene. There were several thousand corpses already strewn across the battlefield. It was raining heavily. Um, the soldiers uh, who had survived the first day were literally sleeping in puddles. There were wild pigs who were roaming the battlefield who were already feeding off the cars. Everyone who was there that night said it was the most nightmarish moment of their lives. And yet Grant decrees that 6 a.m. the next morning that they are going to mount a counterattack. I mean, this is such an audacious gamble. There had been so much bloodshed. I can't think of any Civil War general who would, ha would have had the audacity at that moment in the war to do what Grant did. And of course, they push the uh, Confederate army uh, back. And Sherman said that Grant's greatness as a general was that there was always, you know, the Civil War battles, as everyone in this room knows, they were often these seesaw battles. And Sherman said that Grant's great strength was in these seesaw battles. He was able to divine, that was Sher uh, Sherman's word, Grant was able to divine the precise moment that if Grant took the initiative, he would ride on to, uh, to victory. And he knew that exact moment uh, at Shiloh and pushed the Confederates back into northern Mississippi. All right, then I think we get into the true, or the true greatness of Grant, Vicksburg, Vicksburg campaign. I think it's his um, uh, masterpiece in, uh, in many ways. Let's, let me just mention one thing that I think is not mentioned often enough about uh, uh, Grant. He was a master of deception. You know, he, he runs the, he has to get to the high, dry land south of Vicksburg in order to attack this uh, fortress. He runs the gunboats and the transports past the big guns at uh, Vicksburg. Thanks to a local slave, he's told that there's an unguarded spot on the Mississippi 60 miles south of Vicksburg where he lands the Union forces. Okay, in terms of deception, because the deception is all important. Number one, he knew that P John Pemberton, who was the Confederate general overseeing Vicksburg, he knew that Pemberton would expect him to take the quickest route up to Vicksburg, which was along the water. Um, so Grant, in order to fool Pemberton, does indeed send troops um, up along the, uh, that route. That was, that was a feint. That was in order to throw Pemberton off, because the real uh, move was Grant is veering off to the northeast at a sharp diagonal towards the state capital um, at uh, Jackson. Very, very clever ruse. He also has uh, Sherman at a place called Haynes's Bluff, um, feign an attack 
from the north, and uh, Pemberton was generally, generally fooled. Suddenly, Pemberton is getting all these reports that first that they're coming up from the south along the water, then they're coming up from the, uh, the north. And then kind of finally, um, Grant had sent uh, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, the famous horse soldiers raid, um, on a 600-mile rampage through eastern Mississippi. What that was all about, in part, was not only to rip up railroad tracks and take Confederate prisoners, but that was also to deceive John Pemberton. Um, Grant's strategy uh, is um, very effective. He ends up in a three-week period winning five consecutive victories, lays a siege to uh, Vicksburg, uh, tries twice to mount an assault, doesn't work, but finally starves out the city. And you know the stories of people living in, in caves in, in Vicksburg. And then finally, uh, John Pemberton uh, realizes that um, they're being starved out and that he has no choice but to uh, surrender. And this, mind you, um, Grant captures three entire Confederate armies during the war at Fort Donelson, um, at Vicksburg, and then, of course, at Appomattox Courthouse. And I find it a strange thing in American history that U.S. Grant, who captured three entire Confederate armies, uh, that people could think that Robert E. Lee, who never captured a single Union army, was the greater general. Go figure. All right, so we, we win the, he wins the Battle of Chattanooga. Grant comes east. Yeah. Robert E. Lee, U.S. Grant. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Grant finally comes east in uh, March 1864. Um, he's traveling. Uh, he made a very good decision, I think. Instead of being a desk-bound general-in-chief, he's going to... Um, he didn't want to lose that connection with the fighting in the field, so he decides that he's going to travel uh, with the Army of the Potomac under George uh, Gordon uh, Meade. Uh, Grant assembles an enormous, enormous uh, army of 115,000 uh, versus Lee had only a little bit more than half of that. Uh, Grant decides to cross um, the Rapidan River, uh, knowing that on the other side of it is a place called the Wilderness. And I don't know how many, probably a lot of you have been to the, uh, the Wilderness. Even today, if you're there, the visibility is like, you know, 20, uh, 20 yards. Um, it was a dense thicket of trees and shrubs, so-called second-growth uh, forest. Um, I went when I was doing the research to the little knoll where Grant sat. He had to direct this entire battle of the wilderness, not based on sight, but sound, because you could see, you couldn't even see as far as we can see in this room. So he's kind of ba judging based on, of course, couriers and messages coming into him, but also just the uh, sounds of uh, battle. It was... Um, it was as horrifying a war, you know, battle as any in the Civil War for the simple reason that um, it was very dry um, and the, um, uh, the powder and fire uh, set, the, 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 set the trees on fire. There, there was brush and pine cone, uh, which meant that people were being asphyxiated from the smoke. Um, it also meant that um, soldiers who were wounded being roasted alive, and of course, rather than being roasted alive, soldiers started committing suicide, uh, feeling that suicide was preferable to, uh, to being roasted alive. It was a battle in which neither side, you know, from one point of view, won. There were certainly more Confederate casualties than uh, uh, Union casualties. But I think it was a big moral victory for, for Grant, and I thought of actually of opening the book with this scene, because what happens at the end the Army of the Potomac was so accustomed to not only losing to Lee, but then turning tail, crawling back to Washington, Northern Virginia, in defeat, in disgrace. And that night at the end of the wilderness battle, Grant tells his officers to be ready to, to move out. And so they start marching away, and they come to a crossroads where they expect to kind of wheel around to the left which meant that they were marching back towards Washington and Northern Virginia. Instead, this entire gigantic army, they were wheeling around to the right. In other words, they realized that far from being defeated, they're going on to Richmond. 
And a tremendous cheer went up from the ranks, even though they had just suffered this incredibly you know, bloody uh, battle together, that they realized that they finally had someone in charge who was going to persist in attacking Robert E. Lee until the war was over. And that's what happened. And of course, it was longer and much bloodier than Grant or anyone thought that overland campaign was uh, going to be. But Grant kept steadily, steadily uh, pushing uh, Lee back and whittling down his army. And finally, at Appomattox, prevailed. Getting to Appomattox, yeah. what are your observations of Grant as a victor? Yeah, well, Grant is extraordinarily um, magnanimous in, uh, in victory. Uh, Robert E. Lee came to, the, uh, to that meeting um, at Appomattox Courthouse uh, wearing uh, his finest uniform and a, a dress sword because he said to his uh, officers, he actually thought he was going to be taken prisoner. Uh, and so he wanted to kind of you know, dress for this uh, moment. So he clearly, the fact that he thought he was going to be taken prisoner meant that he thought that uh, Grant was going to adopt a very punitive attitude uh, toward him. Um, Grant, when he was asked later what was on his, because Grant rides down the main street, a uh, traveler is sort of munching, you know, grass uh, uh, outside, so he knows that's the house uh, with Robert E. Lee. And Grant was asked later, um, what was on your mind at that moment? And Grant said the main thing on his mind was his own dirty boots. I mean, he was really not, you know, prepared. He had not expected this moment uh, to, to happen then. Uh, and Grant had been uh, riding hard. It wasn't at all uh, a fashion or a political statement uh, by Grant. Um, it was uh, simply the happenstance of when this happened. Um, Grant wrote so movingly about this in his memoirs. I think it's the most uh, beautiful passage uh, in the book because he realized that Lee was a man of tremendous pride and dignity. He was trying to read Lee's face and couldn't, realized that he must be struggling with very, very uh, deep uh, feelings. Uh, and then Grant made the following statement in his memoirs. Uh, he said that, said, I felt like anything uh, other than rejoicing over the downfall of so valiant an enemy and that had fought so bravely in a cause, although that cause was the worst for which um, an army could have uh, fought. And um, I think that, you know, I, I love that statement just because of the two sides of the statement, that he was able to separate the extraordinary courage and valor of the Confederate soldiers from the fact that this was all in a very, very um, misguided um, uh, cause. And, you know, what I love about Grant at Appomattox, it's not simply in terms of the generosity of the terms that he gave Lee, but Grant refused to allow his men to celebrate there was no gloating um, over this. He didn't allow them to kind of you know, fire off uh, victory salutes. Um, I love this story. Oh, and I think very important, this tells you everything you need to know about Ulysses S. Grant. <clears throat> Grant, believe it or not, never entered Richmond after Richmond fell. I can't think of another general that would have made that uh, decision. And in fact, Julia, was, Julia Grant was uh, eager for him to enter the fallen Confederate capital. And, Grant said to Julia, don't you realize how bitterly these people are feeling their defeat? And would you want me to go into Richmond and just make them feel more miserable? He was always so afraid of making the South feel humiliated or embittered. Uh, and then even after the war, in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, where there were all the famous historical paintings, there was a proposal to have a big historical painting of uh, Lee surrendering to Grant. And Grant vetoed that idea saying that it could only embitter the South. All right. Grant becomes president. Now, we talked earlier that when we went to grammar school, high school, Grant was considered to be one of the worst presidents in the yeah. history of the United States. Yeah. What's your assessment? Yeah. You know, in the, uh, in the late 1940s, the, the first poll of presidential historians, Grant ranked next to the last. Uh, Warren, Warren G. Harding beat him out for the distinction of being worst president in American history. That was how Grant was regarded. Um, in uh, the most recent poll, um, a few years ago, he'd moved up from, what was it, number 43 to uh, number 28. Uh, the very the poll just taken a couple of months ago, and I hope my book had a small part in this, he's now moved up to number 21 from number 43. So he's now kind of moving into the upper house. Upper half, I think we'll go higher. Okay. What I try to argue in the book is that 
Grant has always been kind of, you know, tarred with the stereotype, this administration marred by nepotism and scandal. That happened, I spend a lot of time in the book uh, on that stuff, but I tried to make the argument that was not, to my mind, the main event. That was a very sad sideshow of his presidency. The main event was what Ulysses S. Grant did to protect the four million former slaves who were now full-fledged American citizens. Slavery had been abolished by the 13th Amendment. They'd been given equal protection under the law by the 14th. The 15th had given black males the right to, to vote. That 15th Amendment, which gave black males the right to vote, unleashed a wave of white terrorism in the South against blacks for daring to exercise their right to register and vote. The Ku Klux Klan reigned, conducted a reign of terror in every southern uh, county. There was no southern sheriff that would dare to arrest a member of the Klan. There was no southern jury that would dare to convict a member of the Klan. There was no southern juror who would dare to send a Klansman to, to jail. Grant took the new Justice Department. The Justice Department was created in 1870. Grant became president in 1869. Grant took the new Justice Department, named a crusading attorney general named Amos Ackerman, who was from Georgia, although originally from the North. And Amos Ackerman brings 3,000 indictments, gets 1,000 convictions against the Klan. He crushes the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan that we know today, which unfortunately is still with us, was the revival of the Klan in the 19-teens and 1920s and had parallels uh, to the original organization. But the original organization was really um, stamped out by Grant. This seems to me an enormous, enormous historical uh, achievement, and it's one that's been completely forgotten. I think that it's so much more important than a lot of the often, you know, petty scandals that um, marked his administration and that unfortunately for a long time tarnished his reputation as a president. All right. Thank you very much, Ron Chernow. Get you out on time. Thank you, Thank you again. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Again, welcome back. Beth, I think that was one of the highlights of the year at the Civil War Roundtable with Ron Chernow. Oh, absolutely. I know there were people that wanted to join us and we just didn't have room. And I am so sorry about that. Um, I think you did a wonderful job. Every We had a great time. But I think everybody, even if you weren't there when you're listening to him, you can tell that Mr. Chernow is, he's not just a wonderful researcher, 
but he he really gets to know the people and he's he as a biographer he's very positive about about the people that he's writing about which i think is marvelous sometimes people just always look for bad stuff he said he'll talk about the things that went wrong but he'll also say these are great people and they're great because they do great wonderful things and i'm so glad that he brings out the things that are are forgotten overlooked or intentionally ignored okay now i should have mentioned the fact that we're introduced by past president of the Civil War Roundtable, Charles Mander, president of the Fletcher Platt Committee. So he made the introduction on that. I should give Charlie his due. Now, again, some of you saying, hey, you know, let's talk more about estate planning and elder law. <laughs> All right, we've got seminars coming up Monday and Tuesday of next week, you know, March 25th and 26th, uh, March, June 25th and 26th. We're doing seminars. We're going to be at the Three West Club. 3 West 51st Street, same place where we had that meeting with Ron Chernow, and we're going to be doing it at the 3 West Club at 11 o'clock and 3 p.m. on Monday, June 25th at 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Tuesday, which is also primary day for those of you who live in certain parts of the city, Tuesday, June 26th, we're going to be in Staten Island at the Bocelli Restaurant, 11 o'clock, 3 p.m., 7 p.m. And the idea about the seminars, one, we give a presentation, give you an overview of estate planning and elder law. And again, estate planning is passing assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save your assets from the nursing home. So that's what we're going to be talking about. But at the end, we, we hang around, we stick around, and we, I think, answer every question from the floor. Every once in a while, I may have to go somewhere. But... You know, I won't have to go anywhere on, on these two meetings, and I'll stick around and I'll answer every question you have, anything about estate planning and elder law. So, you know, if you if you got any doubts, come in. Now, we're going to be in Brooklyn probably in July and then in Queens in August, so we'll be coming around to a place near you. If you want a reservation, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. There's no charge. It's free. But we do want to get an idea of how many people are there so we can set up the room properly, have the right amount of chairs. Because the last thing we want to do is start adding chairs as people are coming in when we're, you know, talking at the same time. You know, if there are less people there, we can spread out the chairs and be more comfortable. So give us a call at 718-238-6500 for reservations. Now, we're coming pretty close to the end of our show. We can't forget about tomorrow. Father's Day. Happy Father's Day Father's to everybody Day. tomorrow. Happy, uh, yes, and we might have to be deploying troops. What do you think, Mike? I think we should. We're being a little backlogged on that. And for <laughs> those who haven't seen it, you know, we've been on New York One and on WCBS 2 News about our military miniature collection. Of course, we also talked about it with Steve Forbes. So if, if you check in on WCBS, you'll get it. David Kincaid is saying goodbye. Happy Father's Day. We're on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.